Hey, Sandy. How you doing? I'm great. I'm like 30 feet from a polling station for advanced polls in Quebec, and there have been nonstop lines. Nonstop lines. And so... Oh my gosh, it's about that time, huh? Yeah, yeah. So at some... Okay. On one hand, it's like really, really amazing to see so many people excited enough to vote that they're lining up, and they're lining up for a long time, and this is just the advanced polls. On the other, I feel like... I feel like more and more people have been voting in advanced polls. This has been a trend that's been happening like for the last decade. And elections authorities are not like opening more advanced polls. And so people are then forced to wait in line and waste, you know, their Sunday morning or their Monday morning to do so. So that sucks, but it is cool to see people voting, I guess. But it is cooler to see people being together in a space for a long time where they have to make small talk. That's what mm-hmm. I'm actually most excited mm-hmm. by. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's great. I mean, we were talking about that a little bit this weekend, and I think we should recreate some of our conversation for the pod today because it had me thinking for quite a bit. Ooh. But this this idea of how great it is and how necessary it is to spend time in space with people. And that's like one of the things that I think makes us human and not uh-huh. cyborgs is like, you know, it's important. It's important. So thanks for that reminder. Before we get into that, I just, uh, you know, we're going to talk about uh, Fiona uh, on this on this podcast. And I just want to say to all of our listeners out East, and people who may have been affected, whose families may have been affected, I hope that you're all all right. I hope that um, recovery is is going well, um, and and I hope that you know some of the things that we talk about on this podcast will be uh, helpful in some way to someone. Um, and I'm just, you know, I feel really devastated for everyone who has had to go through that devastation on the East Coast and everyone, you know, from the Caribbean all the way up because it's been on a path of destruction for some time. Yes. And hurricane season, of course, is not yet over. Um, And uh, we know that there's more hurricanes on their way. We will be talking more about that in this episode. But first, I will share some gratitude and then let's get into it. Mm-hmm. This week, we have a couple of folks to thank. Uh, and as usual, thanks to everybody who shares the pod or comments on it or gives us here reflections and ideas. We've heard a lot of really great feedback from the last couple of episodes we've done. Yeah. Um, so keep that coming. We really love it. This week, we have to say special thanks to Pamela, Emily, CJ, and Jess. Thank you so much for your support. Thank you so much for your support. Um, yeah, so before we get into uh, to Fiona, I just, you know, Nori, you said something to me this weekend um, when we were talking off the pod about <laughs> how important it is that we have space for nothingness and how important it is mm-hmm. that we have space to connect with one another. And I just, you know, remembering the nothing times, the times where you would fill your day uh, not with a phone or the internet, um, but with, or what the internet was telling you to fill your day with, um, but with whatever it was that you so desired, like, you know, a walk, a book, or just 
looking off into the distance <laughs> in hmm. in the in the afternoon rain, you know, as it may be. And like I think that that time period and those moments of nothing are so important for imagination. And the moments of connection, random connection at the bus stop, at the grocery store, um, these things that are becoming, uh, these interactions that are becoming less and less, uh, less and less a part of our lives as things become automated, automated checkouts, uh, Ubers to your door, uh, you know, groceries delivered to your door. Like those moments really enable us to see the humanity in people. <laughs> and I, uh, mm-hmm. I, I fear that we're like in these, these two huge things that we, um, that we were talking about this weekend that we don't, we're doing less and less. Um, we're, we're losing quite a lot. And I think our inability to imagine is uh, really hard on how our entire society is structured right now and, and what we can imagine to be possible in the future. I think we leave a lot of that to billionaires these days and that doesn't make sense. And, and I think our inability to uh, really be in, in like these spaces with one another makes it difficult for us to have, you know, real live uh, experience with forming real life relationships <laughs> with people. Yeah. And it's, it's fucking weird. I'm not a Luddite or anything, but like, there's something about these before times that were pretty all right, you know? <laughs> mm. Yes. So I have been on this kick for a while and some folks may have seen me asking on Twitter about who your favorite Canadian existentialist thinker is, which is perhaps a ridiculous question. Um, the responses were pretty interesting. Uh, certainly interesting to see who who considers what to be philosophy these days. But like, I can't really stop thinking about that idea of nothingness and nothingness being um, that that kind of that sense that sits in, inside you that perhaps it's dread or perhaps it's uh, feeling uh, loneliness and isolation. Like uh, like we mostly attribute it to negative feelings, right? Um, but that nothingness is a really important part of being. It's a really important part of human existence. And so I've been just like so obsessed with this idea that, um, to, you know, fulfilling fulfilling life is struggling against nothingness. It's struggling against nothingness through art, through creation, through doing your own things uh, to make yourself feel fulfilled. And sometimes it's sitting with those feelings and feeling that, that existential dread. Sometimes you can feel that existential dread with religion and meaning and spirituality. And that's really great. Uh, most of the time, that's really great. But what I'm so fascinated by is that we have filled that nothingness, that dread, that downtime with nonstop information non-stop information and some of it's totally frivolous and some of it's really really important some of it might be learning a language some of it some of it might be reading uh the news all the time a lot of it's doom scrolling on our social media feeds but when we obliterate nothingness 
we're, we're, we're really cutting off a really fundamental part of who we are. And I think that the impact of that, we're seeing it in tons of different ways and lots of anxiety and people not knowing what to do with themselves and in, in even more feelings of dread that then kind of get plowed down with other kinds of things that you're throwing into your, uh, into your daily life to, to get rid of that, that dread and that, that, that feeling of nothingness. But like, I'm thinking, God, like going for a walk without listening to something, doing, uh, the dishes without listening to something, um, hanging your clothes rather than using the dryer and not not listening to something, not filling your mind with things, but actually allowing your mind to have that 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 space to have literally nothing happening inside of it. It's it's pretty powerful if you think of just where we are. So I, I'd like to explore this a little bit more. And if, if, you know, listeners have ideas on this, like obviously get in touch. But then the other thing that you mentioned, Sandy, was this the obliteration of serendipity, the, the obliteration of, of randomly running into people and the the creation of a job market where soon we will have workers who are visible and workers who are invisible. And oftentimes the visible workers will be at home uh, doing their thing, maybe in small groups coming into the office once every couple of weeks. Um, maybe you'll have some service workers that haven't been replaced by machines. And then you have the invisible workers that are all running behind the scenes to make sure that those machines run. For every self-checkout, for every uh, delivery uh, uh, left at your doorstep, there is a ton of invisible labor that's going behind that. And then rather than meeting the individuals who are doing those deliveries or or who are at the checkout or uh, you know, you're lining up somewhere and meeting people that you might see because you have the same patterns and the same schedule as them, that's a, that's completely obliterated. And that also does a lot of damage to our, us, I think, psychologically and socially. And I can't really believe that no one seems to be talking about this. And by, by no one, I don't mean like literally no one, but like if I was designing the world, this would be like one of the most popular topics of conversation right now. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, I was thinking about this um, this idea of nothingness and how often as a kid, like one of my favorite things to do is just to like walk to the library with no idea what I was going to do when I got there, <laughs> which just seems like such a, a thing that just wouldn't happen in my life now. Like I wouldn't do that. There's no there's no moments like that. And I don't know if that's because that's a, a child's thing to think or if that's because my, my life is so regimented because of uh the internet. And that's, um, it's like hard to figure out. It's hard to parse. But if you know me, if you have like been in conversation with me a few times, you've heard me rant about libraries and how I think that libraries are the most special thing in the world. <laughs> and that if we were <laughs> being counted on to build the idea of libraries today, it wouldn't happen. Like it's just such a fantastic, phenomenal idea that does not come up in in this stage of capitalism like it wouldn't come up and I was thinking about that the other day with 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 school buses like I was like looking at this line of school buses and thinking man like we've lost I don't I have such little faith in our imagination that I don't believe that if we were required to create the idea of school buses today that we would have done it we're just so committed to the idea of the individual and I think that that might be a good segue, mm. actually, into talking about um, what's what's happening on the East Coast and being uh, being so committed to this idea of of individuals and everyone for themselves and having individual services for one another and um, and what happens when when disaster strikes and it becomes very clear that we do not live individual lives. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, you know, so this morning on The Current, um, host Matt Galloway was talking to folks out in Porta Basque in Newfoundland, uh, a community that was really, really devastated by the, I guess we can't call it a hurricane, the post-tropical storm Fiona by the time it hit parts of Canada. And one of the things that the that the they were speaking to a local journalist, and one of the things that the journalist was talking about was how everyone in the town knows knows each other, and they'd see each other at the store, or they see each other in the streets, and those kinds of connections become extremely important when you have a moment of crisis and you can't rely on the state to help you. So, knowing that that house there, there's someone inside who uh, is likely to need support with food. Knowing that that house over there, uh, they've got a bunch of kids. And two of the kids can probably help uh, in the neighborhood. And then two of the other kids um, actually need to be watched so the parents can go and do stuff. That's all really interesting and important information to know about your community. And, you know, while Atlantic Canada often has this rap of being very um, quaint and homey and everyone's nice, they all know each other and all this kind of stuff. It's not like that isn't the case or shouldn't be the case everywhere in this country. But increasingly, we are shut off from our neighbors and we are shut off from the people around us. Um, and it's to our to our detriment, because when a, when a massive problem like this happens, you need to know your neighbors because your neighbors are going to be the first people to help. You're going to be the first person to help them. And and what's so interesting to me is, is like I think that we want to help people. I think that that's a natural human desire when there's anything that happens. The vast majority of people want to help others. But you need to know where to start and you need to know people and you need to have done a little bit of that work in advance now, society before was arranged such that you probably would have done that work in advance because you would know your neighbors. You'd be outside, you'd be walking, you might sit on the porch at night uh, without like necessarily needing to be on your phone. So you're saying hi to people that walk by. And now we don't necessarily have those connections, which means that our ability to do that kind of uh, aid work when we need to becomes really challenged. Yeah, and I think there's there's something to this idea that our governments have completely like it's it's hard for our governments to to do that sort of aid work because um, our systems have been so um, set up to uh, benefit us individually. And I mean, I mean, if we think about what happens uh, during a disaster and what happens afterwards, people are really reliant on their like individual uh, insurance and so on. And the government like uh, only responds to like, I, I don't know, you know, get the army in there for, for cleanup efforts, like in an, in an aftermath sort of situation. And these, these sorts of connections that people make between one another, knowing their community in order to help one another, it becomes the lifeline. It becomes the thing that we are um, reliant on for survival. And it's really revelatory actually, because isn't that always true? Aren't we always dependent on one another uh, for survival? Um, you know, it 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 should not be a shock uh, that that's the thing that that leads us to survive these very difficult situations. And in fact, it should teach us something about the way that we need to be organizing our lives more generally. Like there there could be infrastructure to make any of this and all of this simpler. But that infrastructure is increasingly being destroyed in communities everywhere. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and, and, and then, like, incredibly, our interactions are then monetized. You know, I think a lot about hitchhiking. Oh. And, um, okay. you know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In Toronto, I'll find myself walking uh, oftentimes along large stretches of road and think to myself, God, if this person is, who stopped at this light right here just, like, allowed me to get in their car and then just drove wherever they were going and let me get off at 10 in 10 blocks or something, that would be great. That would be nice. That would be serendipitous. We'd have a conversation. I'm not late, so I'm not getting into the subway. I don't need the ride. But wouldn't that be cool if we had a system of ride sharing? And then all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, we do have a system. It's called fucking Uber. Like somehow this corporation has monetized hitchhiking, right? Or monetized, our our relationships are monetized by being pushed online. And so literally the interactions we have with our family and and our friends are being done for someone's profit. Yeah. Like that's really incredible if you fucking think of it like that. Really, really incredible. And so like with all of our interactions being pushed into into locations where they're being monetized, it means that our relationships are commodities. Like every one of our relationships now and the expression and participation of those relationships are commodities. They are making someone money. And like it's bad at the best of times, but it's when you see these kinds of crisis situations that it's absolutely the worst. And what I think is so fascinating is that then you have a whole media establishment that is set up to like valorize these kinds of individualized stories of mutual aid as if that's not the normal thing that people do and make it sound like, oh, it's so amazing. Friends are helping each other out. (laughs) You know, oh my God, that guy went door to door to see if people were alive. Can you believe it? (laughs) It's like, uh... Yeah, yeah, that I that I can believe. That seems like a really normal thing to do when you've just had a massive uh, crisis and you want to make sure everybody's okay. So we're like constantly being broken. This re- our relationship with one another is constantly being broken, trivialized. Uh, uh, stories are being told about how we interact with one another in media that is that is like not actually normal, not actually how we should be interacting with one another. And all of it is just priming us to want more, uh, or to 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 be to be accepting of the fact that our interactions. Our random interactions, our formal interactions, our interactions with, with, with commerce, our interactions with society are just totally fucking commodified. Yes, entirely. And I mean, we could in, envision an entirely different way to set up our society, right? Like, I mean, one of the things that people are uh, organizing for one another, I'm sure, is is making sure that people have food, Right. Like what, what a basic thing to do to make sure that people can be nourished during a time when there's some uncertainty of, as to whether or not you're going to be able to, to access food. But what if, what if we had a whole system where the government and the, the people, like the infrastructure around us that we set up to like, um, you know, deliver the way our lives work? What if we had an infrastructure where we were provided basic food? Like where where food, well, that was the expectation that um, the government was going to ensure that there was always free, basic amounts of food for people. When a disaster like this strikes, um, it wouldn't be upon people to scramble to organize um, on their own with the resources that they have 
uh, food for one another. Um, There would likely still be some sort of organization as this is still an emergency situation, but such uh, provisions of necessities to one another would probably be easier and we could focus on other things that we would we still need to provide to one another, like perhaps uh, child care mm-hmm. or assistance uh, to people who need assistance with getting around at a time when, uh, you know, like the earth has been uprooted in some places and it's just really difficult to move from place to place. Um, like we could imagine a society that is not based on commodifying every social relationship and is in fact based on just literally ensuring that we can survive. Um, And, you know, as we careen faster and faster into this new world where, you know, we're probably going to be seeing more hurricanes coming north, more tornadoes coming north, more uh, atmospheric rivers uh, and strange heat pockets uh, coming north that are going to be these moments of of real real hard devastation where we're going to need to take care of one another. And I think we're going to have to start thinking really deeply about, gosh, do we really want to continue with this commodification of all our lives and then scraping together um, everything that we can uh, to save one another in the aftermath? I, I, you know, I don't know if that's going to work for very long. Like, uh, well, and I don't know if it works for everyone very well. So it's just something that I think we really have to think about, which means that those of us who are telling these stories about what's happening in the aftermath, it can't just be, isn't this nice that um, this Eric or whomever is going door to door to make sure um, that that everyone is alive or to make sure that there's not people who need help. There has to be some sort of analysis of the situation, what it means and what happens next, the next time that this happens. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then we can start thinking up as well, like how these community relationships should be informing or, or defining how government looks, Right. Like the whole point of a democracy is that government is supposed to be the expression of these kinds of relationships. And so you want government because it is not efficient to have a single community try to fix all of its outed power. (laughs) Like it's more efficient to have the government coordinate that. Oh, except for when it's been privatized, which is, of course, the case in some parts of Canada. And so you organize society based on these relationships, on relationships of uh, between people who have formal relationships with one another, between groups of people, you know, the like classes of people, class in the in the classic sense of the word based on income or whatever, but also classes of people just like the the group of people in the morning that are taking the bus together. They have nothing else. A lot of them will have nothing else in common other than they've got a similar schedule and they're taking the bus together. They're a class of people. The government is then supposed to be this expression of 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 these relationships, but in a more organized and properly resourced fashion, thanks to tax revenue and other kinds of revenues that the government can raise. And so you look at this 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 hurricane 
you know that the federal government's not doing enough to combat climate change. Like, that's to start, you know, Justin Trudeau bought a fucking pipeline. Like, these fucking people are in bed with the oil companies. Like, they can go fuck themselves. Um, but even if Canada was doing, like, what it should be doing to combat climate change, we know that it wouldn't, on its own, it would help, but it wouldn't stop climate change. We need to have global solutions, obviously. So let's say they did all of that right. That would be one piece of it. But then there would still be the need to protect ourselves from extreme weather. So then what does that look like? Well, I mean, Sandy, you talking about food. I mean, I, I think food should be given to, to every single inhabitant of, of a country in general. But like, were coastal people given like flour and rice and eggs to just to, to survive the storm? Were they given this stuff? Were they given um, materials to help protect windows, like to board up? Were, were there were there mandatory evacuation orders given in places where they reasonably thought that this was going to hit? I mean, I'm asking some of these questions. I, some of the answers I know. I mean, I, I know that food wasn't massively distributed within the within the um, the east coast of this country. I don't know about the specific local local responses for evacuations or for boarding up houses or whatever, uh, or making sure that people who reasonably could have their house assumed by the sea to make sure that they weren't in their homes. We knew that at least two people were in their homes when that happened. Like that seems like a massive state failure. And then you have Justin Trudeau. I'm sure you saw this tweet, Sandy, but maybe you didn't because I know you've been a little busy in the last couple of days. Asking Canadians to donate to the Red Cross and the federal government will match everybody's donation. Oh, man. <laughs> so the federal government is basically a corporation, is what we're saying now. Cool. They're the Royal Bank of Canada. Wow. <laughs> like, as if they don't literally have the money to just give people what they need. Like, why the fuck would they be giving money to the Red Cross? I mean, okay, so the Red Cross that's is... Really, that's really disgusting. Yeah. I'm, I'm really disgusted by that. That is, that is stunning. <laughs> I, wow. So you've got the Red Cross that has this expertise. Okay, so maybe the federal government doesn't have this expertise and they have to contract the Red Cross to be doing it. But then just give them the fucking money. Like, wh- what? Right. So like these kinds of, 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 of total, like, incapacity of government agencies to be able to do what they are apparently supposed to do, what they were set up to do. I mean, this is really this is really where things are, are become like a crisis point, right? We have shorelines that have disappeared that have been massively changed. Uh, we know uh, parts of this country, like the Magdalen Islands, uh, on the eastern uh, side of well, in the Atlantic Ocean, it's part of Quebec, but it's like much closer to the to maritimes. Uh, their their coastline is being uh, eroded in very dangerous ways. Uh, uh, other you know rising sea levels are threatening coastal uh, provinces, and coastal territories in the north. Obviously, this is a global issue, so coastal uh, island nations are are particularly at risk. And 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 what like what was the fucking preparation? What was the preparation like emergency alerts and telling people to fucking what hide? Good luck. We'll see on the other side. It's 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 really fucking alarming, like alarming, knowing that this stuff is going to continue to happen. It's alarming that we that that government has no capacity to do this. And so then all of a sudden, not only should we have these like personal connections that we have with our people in our neighborhood or our families or whatever to survive these issues. But then we also then don't even have that other higher safety net within government to be able to protect us. It's it's leaving us extremely vulnerable to these catastrophic weather events. 
I mean, more vulnerable than we already are because we already are quite vulnerable. I am, I yes. am like really <laughs> speechless at that that tweet. Like that uh, represents a really, really um, uh, disgusting idea. Like I just. No, I didn't see it. Um, and so uh, I'm like, re- I'm kind of speechless. Like what a, I'm, were people, was the response to that like anger? Oh yeah. Yeah. They're, like a lot of folks uh, okay. were saying like the fuck. Um, now I bet that probably they were disproportionately like critics of the liberals though too. So I'm not sure I saw any liberals criticizing Trudeau for saying that. Well, I'm sure if there there was too much uh, criticism, there was a an army of of liberal uh, Twitter accounts with uh, Canadian flags in their bios that were talking about how great it was. I'm sure, um, because that's how Twitter works uh, for the Liberal Party. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but I digress. Uh, yeah, uh, this is this situation uh, should be discussed uh, as it is, which is that it is unacceptable. And I don't know that I've that I've seen that sort of analysis, um, but it is unacceptable. This is this is something that we now know is going to happen more and more. Uh, we knew the the likelihood of Fiona coming up. You know, people have been uh, coming up to Canada. People had been talking about it on the news for enough time for for the government to get together some response, for enough time to tell people individually individuals, you know, get prepared, you know, you know, go, go to the grocery store and, you know, uh, do the hoarding thing that uh, people are expected to do at times of, of disaster. Sure, there was enough time to tell people to do that. There's enough time to come up with also a collective response. And there are people who are, we have, have given the power to do that. In our, like we have infrastructure for people to do collective response. It is absolutely unacceptable that that collective response is not being organized in a way that needs that it needs to be organized and it should be discussed in that way. Things have to be discussed in that way. As this climate crisis is going to get worse and there is going to be more loss of life uh, and more people uh, people's lives in danger. We have to get our act together as to how we're going to discuss this. And at the same time, you know, we have to get our act together on the ground as to uh, how we are going to create these real pockets of community, real pockets of community um, when the government fails us, because it will, um, as it has shown time and again, like this is where we're at. You know, we cannot expect that the government um, is is going to to do the things that it needs to do to get prepared for these moments. And so it becomes increasingly important for us to reject this turn to individualism that we are um, really expected to 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 switch, uh, you know, sort of um, unnaturally into living into, and and do what we can to live uh, in a way in which we we do know our neighbors, we are interacting with people, and we can uh, be the type of community that responds when disaster strikes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if you're like listening and wondering, well, how do I do that? I, I saw someone tag me on a thread uh, this past weekend of someone kind of explaining how to do organizing. Uh, and they, they thought it was a really great thread. I disagreed. 
<laughs> with it. Um, and I oh. want to mention it just because I think it's a really fascinating philosophical approach to organizing. So the thread was like really painstakingly explaining what the job of an organizer is and what you can do. And it was not exactly concrete, but it was definitely trying to like give more of those broader points as to like, when you're an organizer, you know, you have to be managing different kinds of, of individuals and make sure that people's skills are brought to the fore and they're able to participate fully and all this kind of stuff, which is all true, which is, it was good. I mean, the, the, the thread wasn't incorrect, but I want people to, to know that if you listen to this podcast and you are still not sure about how to organize, that you there's no, like, you don't have to fucking study theory. You don't have to fucking study other campaigns necessarily to just start doing something. The best way to learn how to organize is to literally just start organizing. And so, like, for me, I, I know my neighbors because I make a point of knowing my neighbors because that's really important to me. I live downtown, and so I have a lot of really interesting neighbors, like folks who, like, there's a guy around the house for me that um, I said that he could pick my, my tiger lilies, and he's just now my best friend. And then I have a neighbor who... Um, is always bringing us things that he finds, which is really sweet of him. I mean, there's just, it's just, I love it. And I, and I've, I've been very intentional about this, but where I have learned the most about my neighbors has been in campaign organizing. And so the work that I do in the city around anti-racism has allowed me to meet a whole bunch of people in this city that I would not have normally met. A lot of people that do not live in my neighborhood, but people who I know and people who are connected in different ways who, when we need certain things, we know who to call. That's one set. The second way that I've been really learning who my neighbors are is this campaign to improve transit in our neighborhood. And it has been fucking amazing. Like, like I talked for the first time to someone who I passed every single day on the street for three years in the morning. And I now know that they're, they have enough sensibility to be in support of a tramway project. And we don't have to say hi to each other still. Cause I know people get awkward around that. You don't always want to say hi to someone when you're walking past them. But I mean, it's so amazing to, to be able to map out your neighborhood and map out your neighbors and figure out where people are and where people live. Because Christ, like if something were to happen in this neighborhood, uh, I would want to know who the people are who knows everything about the neighborhood. And I've worked very kind of hard over the last years that I've lived here to identify those people. I know who the people in my neighborhood are who know everybody, who the person you can call when you're like, hey, this went missing from my back deck. Any chance you've seen it? Oh, yeah, it's actually uh, locked up seven blocks away. <laughs> like, how did you know that? That's awesome, <laughs> you know? So don't don't approach organizing as being something that you need a lot of theory and a lot of education to do. It's literally you just try. It's trial and error. And if you if you do something and you amass 50 people and then you're like, oh shit, what do we do? That's where you're gonna want to talk to other organizers or look at similar campaigns or maybe read some theory. But to just start something, like you should just start something. Just start start a community fridge. Start a community uh, garden, right? Do something that forces people to come out and meet one another. Because when the internet goes down and none of us can check Facebook to figure out what the fuck is happening, you're going to want to be able to talk to people face to face. Now, there's a few other things that we want to mention on the show today. One is this uh, this statement by Pierre Polyev that was sent out this this morning. <laughs> uh, it is Monday morning when we are recording this, and uh, it seems that it seems like Pierre might have some regrets about some people um, that he was, you know, 
seen hobnobbing with uh is hobnobbing a word i don't know it seems like it seems like something he'd do hobnob. oh yeah um <laughs> uh at uh, at the at, with you know uh freedom convoy uh folks and i know that we've we had some uh, critique in the past about ca- calling it freedom convoy so i guess trucker convoy although we don't we don't i mean there isn't i don't i don't know a better thing to call it where people would understand what we're talking about so trucker convoy uh but in any case and and not just trucker convoy folks we're talking about the dialogue organization is that right diagalogue or diagalon diagalon it sounds like that harry potter alley um diagon alley that's what i keep thinking of anyway diagalon um uh organization which uh you know one of the um, the symbols of which was found um, at that uh, that raid that the RCMP did in Alberta, where they found a whole bunch uh, of weapons and um, are suspected to essentially have found uh, a uh, you know what they call a you know like an anti-government uh, terrorist organization that was going to you know try to do a probably a January sixth type or worse type event. Uh, and, um, this, this organization, um, uh, was, was, uh, was flagged, uh, from, from that, uh, raid. And then, uh, now I guess someone from this organization said some really awful things about Pierre Polyev's wife. And so now, <laughs> now he's like, these are bad people. <laughs> <laughs> well, he calls them dirtbags and losers, which is kind of a, a funny thing to say. From a dirtbag. Um, yeah. yeah, Polly Ever. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, yeah, sorry, you can't fucking tangle with these guys and get mad when they start to make sexually harassing comments towards your wife. This is your fucking fault. And uh, you can fuck yourself, basically, Pierre Polly Ever. Um, I mean, I know that's not a professional thing to say uh, as a journalist, but I'm only saying that as a reference to um, a recent conversation I had on Candleland with uh, with uh, Candleland Shortcuts. But he really can fuck himself. I mean, this is a guy that has benefited from playing footsie with these fucking freaks for uh, a long time now, many, many months, right? And for them to then like be like, oh, and also whatever they said about his wife and how he's like, oh, oh, whoa, whoa, that's just that's a bridge too far. You can't say that about my wife. You can say that about Justin Trudeau's wife um, and his mom. (laughs) But you can't say that about my wife. Um, But the interesting thing about all of this is that Polly ever cannot lose in this situation because he gets all of the proximity and support that playing footsie with these pieces of shit give to him. And then he gets all of the, 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 the positive press when he calls them out. And so again, we should be looking at this like strategically calculated decisions. This is all fucking smoke and mirrors. This is not a man who's like protecting the fucking honor of his wife. Um, he keeps trotting his wife out uh, to do politics for him. And so she's very, very much a part of his current modern brand. Um, which is like shocking. Cause 25 years ago, if you said that that was gonna be the case for Polly ever, it'd be like that, that's that's impossible no way <laughs> so <laughs> if, i mean this is this is all very fucking annoying one thing i do want to mention is michelle fucking rempel garner who's like always a great feminist in her analysis has she's come out online saying that it's never acceptable never justifiable to go after a woman uh or something like this so 
great thinking there, Michelle. Thanks for thinking aloud with us. Uh, feminists, thank you. You are fucking, as always, a bright light in a star of, in a sea of stars <laughs> that are sinking to the bottom of the ocean. <laughs> you okay? <laughs> Sorry. It's just, you said she's a bright light in a star, which <laughs> to me was, was uh, very funny. It's the kind of thing that I find very hilarious. <laughs> well, she doesn't deserve a fucking metaphor that works, okay? <laughs> no, but the funny thing is that that metaphor does work if you think about it. Yeah, um, it really does. <laughs> she, she's a bright light and a star. That's great. Um, <laughs> she's more like the, the dim corona around the star. <laughs> okay. We have to stop. <laughs> this is getting <laughs> this is getting to me and you for for the podcast um <laughs> uh, the, the, the the one other thing that we wanted to mention is to make sure that you're all paying attention to the NDP leadership race in BC there's a progressive a- activist uh, who's really focused on climate work called Anjali Apadurai, um, who is uh, seeking to be a challenger to um, to David Eby. And, and it looks like at this point, given some of the news stories, that she is going to face some, some difficulty doing that. And I just think that this is, this is, this is one to watch. This is this is a leadership race uh, to watch. What do you think, Nora? Yes, 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 yes. So folks definitely should check out Anjali's work and um, and the controversy that's going on around here. It's it's such a an interesting. Okay, like first of all, I I am not convinced that activists should spend their time doing this uh, because I think it always goes poorly. But I am also very open to being surprised. Like, this is not an opinion that I have that's firm at all, at all, at all. And so I love seeing people, I guess, trying. So Anjali's taking on the establishment. And uh, the, the deadline to sign up new members was September 4th. And the narrative has gotten into the, into the, the media around her candidacy. And, I mean, it's all kind of rumor because it's coming from different places, but that her campaign has managed to sign up some very high number of new members. And it's so high that it threatens David Eby's campaign. That's the kind of the narrative. Now, her candidacy hasn't even yet been approved by the party, which is so interesting. The deadline for that is October 19th. So people should definitely be paying attention to this. Um, her candidacy has to be approved. She has to pay some ridiculous amount of money, like $40,000 $40, to run. And she's been caught up in quote unquote controversy. Now, the controversies are uh, minor, I would say, but they're the kinds of things that are really easy to poke at a progressive outsider saying, man, you're doing these things wrong. You're you're breaking the law, right? Because it's kind of like it like is she breaking the election law? So there's two kind of situations where people are like, oh, she's breaking the law. One is that the Dogwood Initiative, uh, an activist environmental organization, has been helping with her campaign. And there's been charges to say that that violates campaign financing laws. Because, you know, if someone is donating uh, their time in, in campaign work that is at a level that is higher than the amount that you're allowed to give, which is $1,500 or 1500 and change, uh, that's violating the law. So 
Dogwood kind of got as the head of Dogwood. Um, Nagata has been telling journalists that Dogwood's been in touch with Elections BC to make sure that everything is totally above board. But that's controversy number one. I mean, fuck, barely controversy. And then controversy number two is that there was a call. One of her supporters was saying, if you can't afford your membership, like, I'll pay for it. And it comes across as being like that flip, like not like... Jean Charest Charbonneau Commission level like corruption in Quebec, but just like an activist saying this. And then her campaign quickly came out and said, no, like that was, we're not doing that. That's not happening. But that's it. Those are the two fucking controversies. And it's really um, not surprising to see the BC NDP acting like this. Uh, if Apadura is as exciting as she seems to be in terms of getting people involved and getting um, a lot of buzz and actually talking to the environment. I mean, it's it's really great. It's all good. The NDP should be embracing having a fucking race like this, um, but they're anti-democratic. So there's not really any surprise there. Yeah. So listeners, just keep an eye on what's happening over on the West Coast uh, with, with this campaign. I think uh, it's going to be an important one. And uh, and I think that's that's about all we've we've got for today. <laughs> there is one thing I just want to mention to folks that, of course, the Quebec election is ongoing as well. And we have not talked about the collect the Quebec election on this podcast yet. Um, it's really fascinating. There's lots of stuff to say about it. I don't know if we'll do an election issue. Maybe we will. Maybe we won't. Like, you know like pay attention, watch, watch your feeds. But but you have been hosting spaces on Twitter. Yes, exactly. But if you are curious about this, I've been hosting Twitter spaces with Chris Curtis, who's from the Rover. And it's all in English. And it's for a Quebec audience. But we do try to explain stuff for people outside of Quebec as well. So there shouldn't be any acronyms that you don't know or references that you're not aware of without us explaining them. So tune into that. But um, but we will probably mention something as the election election day is, is October 3rd. So it's that fastly approaching, vastly approaching. And in fact, now that I'm like literally speaking, of course, this next episode is going to come out the day after. So, <laughs> you know, the CAC's going to win and QS is surging a little bit, but this, the polls are putting the liberals as probably going to be getting this, the, the, the official opposition, but it'll be tight because the liberals have basically collapsed. 